Galatians three fifteen to 29 Hear the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gives it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you've ever taken a course on public speaking, or like we did in seminary, courses on what's called homiletics, which is the art of preaching, one of the topics that comes up in public speaking and comes up in homiletics is the question of illustrations. Illustrations. Now, these are stories or anecdotes or statistics or facts that help to bring light to the teaching. They, they illuminate. They also uh, give a little bit of a, a break to the, the hearers because if somebody's going along uh, with a carefully reasoned argument, it, it takes a lot of concentration to, to stay with the speaker. And then if the pace changes just a little bit and, and a story starts to come out, if you were having a little bit of trouble, it's time to, to reset and re-engage with what the speaker is saying. Now, some preachers probably use too many of these, and you say, wow, that was a lot of great stories, but what was it about? I don't remember. And then there are others, like me, who probably need to use more, because I tend to just plow through verse by verse and explaining paragraph by paragraph, and probably not giving enough of a break. Well, last week, we were in a really dense section. And it might have been hard to, to stick with the reasoning of Paul. And so what does he do now? He gives us an illustration. So now we have a little bit of a pause. It's not a real gripping illustration for us, perhaps. But he does say, let me give you a human example. That is to say, an example from everyday life. Now let's see if we can catch up really fast where we've been in Galatians. It begins with Paul saying, there's only one gospel, 
and I got that gospel directly from Jesus Christ. I didn't get it from the other apostles. However, when the other apostles heard what I was teaching, they gave me their right hand of fellowship, their stamp of approval. They're in complete agreement with the gospel that I'm preaching. So there is only one gospel preached by those apostles and preached by me as an apostle as well. And what is that gospel? That God became man, that He gave Himself for our sins, and that He rose from the dead. Therefore, both Jews and Gentiles can be accepted by God, justified is the term we've seen, accepted by God as right in His sight, only through faith in Jesus Christ, not by the works of the law. Now, that's where we are up to this point. And last week, Paul he went through Scripture text after Scripture text to show us that this is not some novelty. This is biblical doctrine from the Old Testament and through the New. And here he begins with this illustration of the, of the, the teaching about justification or acceptance by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And here he says, to give a human example, brothers, brothers and sisters, brethren, now, this is notable because he calls them brothers. What did he call them last week? Do you remember? Foolish. He says, you foolish Galatians, what's happened to you? And now he embraces them and says, brothers. And the illustration here is a covenant. We could think of a contract. Probably Paul was thinking about a last will and testament. And the idea is that once it is sealed, once it is notarized, you can't just come along and change the terms of it. We, we understand that. If we have signed a contract and we've, we've looked over the terms and we've signed a contract and then we go back to the person with whom we signed the contract and they said, oh, I changed a few things. What will we say? You can't do that. Not. You can't do that. It's signed. It is sealed. It is ratified. It is set. And there's no way to change it unless, of course, the people who made it decide that they want to change it. But that's the illustration here. He says, to give this human example, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now he goes back to the teaching. He says, what's the point here of this illustration? He says in verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is a subtle sort of argument. It's a little bit of a parenthesis here, but it's a subtle argument. He's saying, the promises. If we go back to Genesis, and we find what God promised to Abraham, He says, I promise this to you and to your seed. And here it's translated, offspring. Now, offspring is a collective singular noun. It's like team or class. You say, my team won yesterday, or my team lost yesterday, but we understand that team involves more than one person. That's how offspring is. But Paul's playing on that ambiguity here. Because you could have one singular offspring, or you could talk about your offspring, which could be a multitude. And he's playing on that that ambiguity of this collective singular noun. And he says, it, it, it actually is singular, and there is a focus in this singularity on one person. This is not actually making things up, uh, because we see this in the Old Testament. We see that Abraham more, had more than one son, didn't he? He actually had a number of, of, of children. But there was one who was the seed 
of the promise, and that was Isaac. And then we find that Isaac had more than one son. But we find that one of them, singular, was the seed of the promise. And now he's taking that forward and he's saying, actually, the seed, the offspring of the promise, is actually Jesus Christ. Now, we'll see that Paul understands that Jesus Christ embraces many uh, along with him because you find in verse 29, he uses the word again, offspring, and now he's talking about many. So he's not ignorant of how this works. He's actually playing in a subtle way on this, this ambiguity here. But also picking up that theme from the Old Testament that even though there are many, there's one seed to whom it comes principally and then from there extends out. Then he goes back to the argument in verse 17, back to the illustration. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. So just as you can't come along and just change a contract that's been signed, the promise was given to Abraham and to his seed, and that promise cannot be annullified by something that comes later. What came later? The law came later. The law came with Moses. The the promise with Abraham, the law with Moses. And he said, the law cannot set aside the promise because it's intact, it's ratified by God. And then he contrasts these two principles in verse 18. And we've seen this all through Galatians. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This, um, this emphasizes the two principles involved here. Promise and law. If somebody makes a promise to you, what can you do? What, what two possible things can you do with that promise? You can either believe it or not believe it. Those are the only things you can do. You can't obey it. Or disobey it. That's a, that's a confusion of categories. If somebody gives you an instruction, a command, what can you do? You can obey it or disobey it. You can't believe it or not believe it. There's nothing to believe or not believe. These are two different categories that call forth two different kinds of responses. When um, Anybody ever hire a babysitter for their kids when they wanted to go out? That rare night out when your kids were little, you hire a babysitter... And you go out, and parents, what they do when they go out and leave their kids with a babysitter, they give a promise, and they give a law. First they give the promise. What's the promise? We'll be back. (laughs) Right? Because the kids are kind of nervous. Mom and dad haven't separated from them for years, and now they're going to go out, and they leave them with somebody else. And what what do you, you assure your kids, and what do you say? We'll be back. We'll be back. Trust us, we'll be back. And the kids can do what with that? They can believe it or not believe it, right? That's all they can do with it. But then they give the law. What do they say? In our absence, while we're gone, obey the babysitter. Behave. Now, let me ask you, does the law nullify the promise? Of course not. It has nothing to do with the... the the legitimacy or the permanence of the promise. The promise was given, it will not be taken back, even if there is a law subsequently given. That's uh, the illustration. And um, then he goes 
to verse 19. And he asks the obvious question. And Paul asks this in Romans. He asked it here in Galatians. And the obvious question is, what's the point? If the promise is there, and if the inheritance is based on promise, believing the promise, then what's the point of the law? Good question, right? It seems like it's superfluous, or it seems like it's even confusing the question. And so he asks the question, why then the law? And he answers, it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. Now, that in and of itself is, is somewhat ambiguous. And uh, theologians talk about the three purposes of the law. We're going to see one of them today. We'll see another of those purposes later. But to say that it was added because of transgression is, is not very clear in and of itself. What does that mean? So we're going to go elsewhere in Paul to find out exactly what that means. And we're going to go to Romans, where he tells us what that means. In Romans chapter 5, it's on page 1043. Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at a few verses here, but Romans 5.13, Paul says this, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Think about that. Sin was in the world before Moses, right? But how do you define it? How do you identify it? How can you count it as a transgression if there's no law that defines what sin is and what sin isn't? So, sin's in the world, but you can't really count it. You can't, you can't identify it without law. If you back up to Romans 3, verse 20... Paul says this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what does the law do? It defines sin, and therefore by defining sin, it makes it known to us. We can know what it is. We can know our sin. Now let's jump ahead uh, a little bit to 5.20, back to chapter 5, verse 20. And here Paul says something that might be kind of uh, surprising at first. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. To increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, what's the effect of law? It defines sin. It gives us the knowledge of sin. But it not only does that, it has the purpose of increasing sin. You know how this works. I know you do. Because when you see a wall or a bench or something that says, wet paint, don't touch, what do you do? What do you do? Touch it. Why? Because it said not to. Right? And, and that stirs up something in us and, and we, we disobey because it says not to do it. Uh, and, and Paul autobiographically shows how this worked in his life. Go up to Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. 
I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see what Paul experienced? So he says, he says, I was fine apart from the law. I was doing great. I was living. I was amazing. And then the law came in. And the law is holy and righteous and good. But sin, taking advantage of the law, responding to the law in rebelliousness, produced all sorts of sin in me. And I died. Now, the commandment was supposed to give life. Do this and you will live. We saw that last week. But because sin takes advantage and disobeys, we find that it results in death. The second part of chapter or verse 19, going back to Galatians, says this. Well, let me, let me just read the whole thing from the beginning. It says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, That we will see he explains in verses 21 and following, but the second part of 19 and verse 20 are kind of hard to figure out. Not kind of hard. They're some of the hardest verses in the New Testament, and I've read that there's some 250 explanations for these. We're not going to go through all 250. Okay, Uh, It says here, and it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. This is hearkening back to a Jewish tradition that angels were involved, it's not in the Old Testament, but angels were involved in the the giving of the law to Moses. And then he says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, clear enough, an intermediary has to be a go-between between two persons at least, and God is only one. That's clear enough, but what's the point in this context? Not really sure. But one simple solution is this. The law was complicated. The law had, a, had angels. The law had a mediator who was Moses. But the promise wasn't complicated. God, who's one, just gave the promise. That's a simple explanation. Maybe not the right one, but it's a simple explanation that fits in this context. But rather than drown in the 250 different explanations... Let's go back to 21, and let's continue the argument. So it says, in verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring, who is Christ, should come. Another question. Is then the law contrary to the promises of God? It sort of sounds like it, doesn't it? It sort of sounds like they're contrary. But he says, is the law contrary? And he says, certainly not. No way. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If it could have worked, we would have stuck with that system, a legal system. Do this and you will live. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So, what does the law do? Defines sin. It gives us the knowledge of sin. It provokes us to sin even more. And so what does it do? It shuts us up in prison. It encloses us. And here it says that it shuts us up so that we might have only one option of getting out. And we realize that that option is not through the law. 
You see how that works? It's useful because it, it imprisons us and we want to get out. But how can we get out? Well, we get out when the promise by faith in Jesus Christ appears. And so that's one image. That's another. That's the second illustration. There's a third illustration here in verse 24. The law came, the law was our guardian. The word here is pedagogue. It's where we get our word pedagogue. So we could translate tutor. The law was our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So we're switching images. We were in prison and now we're under a tutor. And these tutors in those days were often slaves, trusted slaves, who would uh, make sure that the children were doing what they were supposed to be doing. So the, the wealthy would turn their children over to the, the pedagogy or the discipline of these, these entrusted slaves. Sometimes they were free men as well. But this was not a, a pleasant, uh, bring your apple a teacher, oh, I love my teacher. It's not that sort of uh, relationship. It's a relationship of a taskmaster. It's a relationship of a, a tutor who is, who is instituting discipline for the child. So what does the child want? The child wants to get out from under that tutelage and wants to experience freedom. So you see the two images. What does the prisoner want? The prisoner wants freedom. What does the child under that harsh discipline want? Wants freedom as well. What's the way out? The law is not the way out. So in both cases, the law is driving us forward to the only way out, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, um, if, if the... Um, if the gospel doesn't make much sense to you, if you don't really see the point of Jesus coming and dying and rising again, then let me send you to the law. Let me send you to the Ten Commandments, and let me send you to Jesus' explanation of the Ten Commandments in Matthew 5-7. to And if reading the law uh, and reading Jesus' explanation of the law does not drive you to despair, you have not yet understood the law or you have not yet known yourself. Um, But if you look at the law and understand what the law is requiring of you, and if you look at your life and understand how far short you have fallen of what the law requires, then I think you will be able to understand the point of the gospel. You will understand why Christ came. You will understand why He died, why He rose Again, and by grace you will flee to Him and place your faith only in Him for salvation. Now, that's, that's the explanation of the law, but Paul has one more surprise for us. And this is, is, is something of a, a shocking surprise. Because in verse 26, well, so 25 says, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And then 26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons, we could say sons, it's, it's a generic masculine, sons and daughters of God through faith. This is a surprise in Galatians. Because so far the only person whom he has called the Son of God is Jesus. That's the only person he's called the Son of God. And now he's saying... You are all sons and daughters of God as well if you have been driven by the law into the arms of Jesus to have faith in Him alone. This is something that Jews would not have affirmed in, in, a, in an individual, personal sort of way. They might have said that we as Israel, we are 
God's Son as the nation of Israel. But this is getting very, very intimate and personal here. Saying, you all are children of God. Um, We've already learned that we're children of Abraham. And that was an amazing privilege for us Gentiles, wasn't it? Back in chapter 3, we learned that. In verse 29, we learned that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That would be an amazing and is an amazing privilege for us Gentiles, isn't it? We weren't born into this, that we could be called children of Abraham? That's astounding. That's an overwhelming privilege. But Paul takes it a lot farther, doesn't he? He says, not only that, if you are children of Abraham, you are also children of God as well. And if you have been baptized into Christ... You have clothed yourself with Christ. That's what he says in verse 27. As many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've put on Christ as an identity and you have put on the family cloak and you are identified with Christ and you are identified with those who are His. And here we get to the the takeaway, uh, the, the practical implication of this in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What was happening in Galatia? What was happening in Galatia with this, this error that was slipping in, this dependence on the law that was slipping in? People were dividing. The church was getting divided. And that's what happens. That's what happens when you have a standard. And some meet up to the standard, and others don't meet up to the standard. What do you have? You have division. You have separation. But now Paul is saying, if... You are all children of God, baptized into Christ, clothed with Christ, then you are all one in Christ. We have evidence that sometime after Paul's day, Jewish men would pray a prayer of thanksgiving. We don't know if this prayer was a morning prayer when Paul was alive or not, but it stands to reason that it was, because we see that reflected here. This is what a Jewish, a free Jewish male would pray every morning. He would say, I thank you, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank you, God, that I am free and not a slave. And I thank you, God, that I am a man and not a woman. And Paul says, guess what? All that's gone. What are these divisions? One's a racial division. One's an economic division. And one is a biological division. And what are the divisions we have in our world today? Those are the divisions we still have today in our world. We divide among races, one against the other. We divide among socioeconomic classes, one pitted against another. We still divide male and female, one against another. But Paul says, because Christ died not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. Because Christ died not only for slaves, but also for free. Slaves and free are one in Christ. And and that happened in the first century church where slaves and free were able to worship together. And because Christ died for men and for women, you're one in Jesus Christ. Now, we can apply this to basically any category that divides humans. And 
in the Christian church, those things are taken away. This, this came to me very powerfully once, and it was when our older daughter graduated from college. And if you've been to graduations, any kind of graduations, you're celebrating what? You're celebrating academic achievement. And of course, as parents, we were very happy and proud of our daughter who was graduating. And Sandy's sister came over with Sandy's sister, brother-in-law, and their daughter. And we were sitting in this big auditorium and waiting for Whitney to, to come across and not wanting to miss her among the hundreds that were coming across the stage. And uh, we were waiting for her and I had the camera ready. And sitting next to me was Sandy's uh, niece, Beth. And Beth has Down syndrome. But she was very, very excited about Whitney graduating. And uh, I was telling her, Beth, she's coming up. I was, I was seeing Whitney and uh, coming up close to the stage. I said, get ready, get ready. And then I said, it's Whitney's turn. And Beth jumped up and shouted louder than anybody, Whitney! Nobody was happier about Whitney graduating from college than Beth. And, of course, we shared that same joy, but I was also saddened because I thought Beth will never have that experience. Beth will never be able to walk across a stage in a college auditorium and receive a college diploma. And that was saddening to me. And that was Saturday. And on Sunday, we all went to church together. Sandy's sister and brother-in-law and Beth and Whitney and her husband Ian and Sandy and I. And they were having communion that day. And in church, that church, what they would do, they had a few different little tables up front. And groups of families or friends could go up front and gather around the little table and take communion together. And so we all went up and gathered around this little table And everyone there, Beth included, were all believers in Jesus Christ and all all members, communicant members of, of an evangelical church. And so all of us had access to that table and we stood at that table and we ate bread together and we drank wine together. And it struck me that all that pomp and ceremony of yesterday doesn't have any place at this table. Nor does anything else that divides us that makes some superior and some inferior, that makes some on the inside and others on the outside, all of that is taken away because Christ died for all and rose again for all who will believe in Him. So what's the bottom line? Your privileges don't put you in an advantageous position before God. And... Your lacks don't excuse or exclude you from being accepted as right before God and being counted as a son or daughter of God. So lay aside those boasts in your privileges and don't worry about the things that you lack, but rather come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the two things you receive that we've learned about so far a right standing before God. And also, amazingly, you become a son or a daughter of God. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this amazing, amazing news that not only is Jesus Your Son, but that we could be sons and daughters as well. 
through faith in Jesus, the Son. Not only is Jesus the, the offspring of the promise, but we can be offspring as well through faith in Him. Oh God, I pray for all of us that we would be able to lay aside that which is our pride and lay aside that which is our shame and come to You through Jesus and through Him alone. And we pray this in His name, praying also that our church would be a church where the divisions that separate people out there would not have a place, but that we would be very obviously one in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.